You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In my last lecture, I pointed out that God wants to make himself known through Jesus Christ by becoming one of us living in our world. And consequently, the use of human knowledge to understand him better is something that he wants us to do. He wants us to use secular knowledge to understand his divine word. I also said that this reveals to us not only the creator God, but the triune God, the Trinity. God the Father who was known as the one creator by the Jews in nature and through his actions in history in choosing the Jews as his witness and then through his Son in the Incarnation. And thus we know that in God there are two persons, not one person. But we also know that Jesus promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so there is a third person in God. Now we hear that over and over again. And every time we cross ourselves in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we say it. But do we think about what that could mean? The Jews have never accepted that idea, although they are the ones who have taught the world that there is one Creator God. The Muslims who came Islam, which came after Christianity, has also rejected that, saying, well, that doesn't make sense, that there is only one God, and yet he is three persons, then he would be three gods. In the Christian church, we have often gone from one side to the other. There have been heresies which have thought of God as three gods, there have been heresies that have thought of God as one God with three names. And I'm inclined to think that many Catholics who haven't thought about the matter very much suppose that when we speak of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, those are just three names for God. But that isn't what God has told us. God has told us that there are three persons in God, really distinct in the one God. That seems contradictory. And that's why we need to bring in some philosophy to help us to show, not to prove that there are three persons in one God. We can prove by reason that there is one God but we cannot prove that there are three persons in God. That is revealed to us through the second person, Jesus Christ. 
his coming and his sending of the Holy Spirit. What reason and philosophy can help us to do are to show that our faith is not absurd. It's not contradictory to say this. And there is a positive meaning to it. How can that be? Well, the way that philosophy helps theology is usually through analogy. We take something in our ordinary experience that we understand, and then we apply it to God by saying, well, God is the creator, and therefore the world that he has made reflects him, as an artist's work reflects the artist's personality. And so, what is the analogy that will help us here? I'm going to speak here only of the analogy which has recently become very prominent in theology, although it is rooted in older views. Recently in theology, the analogy which is most used to help us understand the Trinitarian character of God is the analogy of human community. We know that we are social animals, as Aristotle says. We can't live merely as individuals. We need to live in a community. Now, the reason we need to live in a community is, first of all, that we need things from the community that we cannot get of ourselves. I couldn't make the food that I eat I need a farmer to help me grow his crops. I couldn't get the education that I have gotten. I need a school to be educated in. We couldn't live in freedom if our government didn't protect us from invasion. We need community because we are so weak and limited. But there's another aspect of community which is even more fundamental. And that is the idea of giving, of self-giving. We are ourselves by giving ourselves. We become fully human by making friends, by sharing what we know, what we have experienced, what we hope with other beings. Human life is essentially social. It's a life of communication, of sharing, of giving, of community. We see that particularly in the family, where the love between husband and wife is a self-giving in mind, feeling, and body. And out of that giving comes the child. Life is communicated to the child. And then the child grows in the family, sharing the experiences of father and mother. Human life, then, the life of the person, is a life of communication. When we turn, then, to God, we know that God is a personal God, intelligent and loving. We begin to see that in Him, there ought to be also a kind of communication. At least it makes sense to think that within God there is a giving. God gives to the creation, 
but he also gives within the divine being. So the mystery of the Trinity is that the Father, who is the source of all things, gives himself totally to the Son. Now, we give ourselves to other persons in a community, but we don't give them existence. The closest we come to that is the parent giving existence to the child. And yet, the parent can only give the child his body. And once the child exists, then the child goes on and has a life of his own. But with the father, the giving is total, so that he gives his entire being as God to the son. There is nothing that the father has that is not given to the son. Furthermore, the fact that the son receives from the father does not make the son somehow inferior to the father. Often we have the attitude that if somebody gives something to us, then that makes them superior to us. They gave something to us, they're superior to us. We forget that as the teacher gives what he knows to the pupil, the pupil becomes equal to the teacher. In God, that is perfectly fulfilled. The son receives all that he is, his total being, from the father. And hence the father and the son have one single divinity, one single being. They are not two gods, but one God, a God who gives all that he has to a God that receives all he has. Then we have to ask about how in a community people are united. And we know that they're united not only by giving, but by responding in love. When someone gives us a gift, we tend to respond to them in love. And so, by analogy, in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who comes from the Father, but through the Son, is the love that unites Father and Son. The Son responds to the Father in love, and yet the Holy Spirit has its origin in the same way as the Son from the Father. The analogy then is that God is the perfect community, a community of the two spiritual realities of knowledge and love. The Son is the Word or knowledge, the Spirit is love. And they form one single being because that divinity of the Father is given totally to the Son and through the Son to the Holy Spirit. Now that's no proof that God is a trinity, but it shows that it is not a contradiction, and it shows that it makes sense, that what we find as our highest reality in human life, which is the reality of human friendship, comes from a God in whom friendship is perfect and absolute. Now, given that kind of a God, the existence of the church, 
begins to make sense. There's nothing more common in our society than for somebody to say, I have a spirituality, but I don't like organized religion. I don't want to have to belong to a religious organization that tells me what to believe and what to do. Our culture is not just materialistic. There's a tremendous interest in American culture in spirituality. Go into a bookstore and you will see a whole shelf of stuff on prayer and spirituality and on occultism and new age stuff, all of which is about spiritual searching. We are a spiritual people. And the religion polls show that something like 98% of Americans believe in God. If you take a poll like that in France, you'll find that something like 20% of the French people declare themselves atheists. Because in France, to be an atheist is to be a wise God, an intellectual. We don't think so much of intellectuals in the United States. We're very religious. We're very spiritual. We think it's not quite respectable to be an atheist. But we want a religion that we invented for ourselves. That's not possible. Religion, the worship of a god, is essentially communal, just as our human nature is essentially social. We have to love neighbor as well as love God. We have to come to know God through a community and in a community. That is why Jesus' teaching all turned around the notion of the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the community of God. We have to live in community, a community of faith and mutual love, a church. The word church simply means an assembly, a calling together around the Lord. We need a church, and a church must be organized. It's a community centered in God with a divine center, yet made up of human beings, and so it has to have a human character. Just as Jesus was the Son of God, yet human, so his church is divine in its faith, but it is human in its organization. Scholars argue a great deal about the church of the first century. By the time we get to the second century, a hundred years after the ascension of Jesus to his father, we know considerably about the organization of the church. But in that first hundred years, there's not very much data. The data in the New Testament is rather scattered because the New Testament writings presuppose a community, but they don't attempt to describe its physical human reality. They are still thinking about the center, Jesus standing at the center. And they don't tell us very much about how the church was organized during that time. It's fashionable among scholars today to say there were different forms of organization. 
The truth is that merely on historical data, we don't know. We only know that in the second century, a well-organized church emerges. What we do see, however, in the New Testament is that Jesus provided for an organization. He picked 12 apostles. He educated them. He gave them the mission to preach and teach to all nations. He taught them to love each other and to get along together, although they were very different, those 12. And he gave them a head. He said to Peter, after you are converted again, after your fall from faith, strengthen your brethren. He said to Peter, feed my sheep. I am the good shepherd. You are to be the good shepherd. The shepherd keeps the flock from scattering. You are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. He gave a head to the church. He gave a group of apostles who were to support that head as a college of leaders. How can we then doubt that Jesus founded the church? Not in its details, but in its essential organic structure. And he gave it the Holy Spirit as its very life, so that in spite of human weaknesses and all the defects of human beings, the Spirit would keep the church together to the very end. I will found my church on this rock, the rock of faith, Peter's confession, and Peter as head of the apostles. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is like a city that will remain permanently. All the promises that were given to the Jews will be realized in the church. Now the church, because it is both divine and human, as Jesus was, has a divine and human side. The divine side is the faith, the gospel, the scriptures, the preaching of the faith, and the sacraments, principally baptism and the Eucharist. The scriptures show us Jesus establishing these. He told the apostles at his ascension, go to all nations, baptizing them as they preached. He said at the Last Supper before his death, do this in memory of me. The other sacraments are also hinted at in the scripture, although they have, in a way, a secondary character. Baptism is fundamental. The Eucharist is the foretaste of the heavenly banquet when we will enter into the community of the Trinity itself. People may wonder why Jesus established sacraments. In the Old Testament, we find through the prophets, God condemning those people who put too much emphasis on ritual, 
sacrifices, and so on. Why then did Jesus establish sacraments? Some have thought that Christianity should be purely spiritual. It should be just a matter of the word preached and believed without sacraments. But Jesus understood our human nature. In talking about the liberal arts, I tried to explain that we have to express our thoughts in human words and symbols. Symbols say more sometimes than words do. Precisely because they are so bodily, so close to human experience, they say more than a word can say. That's why there was a ritual in the Old Testament. It was a very complicated ritual. And it didn't have the possibilities of abuse. The New Testament ritual is simple, and yet it is symbolic, sacramental. And the preached word and the sacrament go together. The word appeals more to the intelligence, the symbol to the imagination and the heart. We need them both. St. Thomas Aquinas, using his philosophy, explains the sacraments this way. He says in life, when Jesus healed people, sometimes he did it simply by saying, be healed, and they were well. But sometimes he reached out and he touched them. He touched the leper. And what that meant, you know, to the leper, not only was he healed, but again, he was united with the human community. He had been cast out. He lived in loneliness. But the touch of Jesus brought him back. St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that the sacraments are the touch of Jesus. They are the very body of Jesus. Instruments that Jesus, through his body, touches us by. The water touches our skin, and although it is merely water, it has the power of Jesus' own body. The Eucharist is Jesus' own body and blood, the body and blood that he offered for us. They touch us. They have that existential character that I mentioned before must be the basis of all truth touch that brings us into the real world and not the world merely of the imagination and the abstract intelligence. The church, therefore, has the word and it has the sacraments. It's incarnational. It brings us into a human community united in faith and brotherly and sisterly love. To call it an organization, however, is perfectly true. It has a structure. It has laws. It can expel members when they disrupt the body, as St. Paul expels the incestuous man and prays for his conversion that he may return to the body. The church is looking forward 
to the end times, when Jesus will return to be the visible head of his church. How that will come about, we don't know exactly. We know it will come about, that God will triumph. Jesus will return. But we know not the day or the hour, nor do we know exactly how that will come about. It may come about by perfect justice, charity, love, and peace on earth, and Jesus will return and say, well done, good and faithful servants. It may come about in the end by the great Armageddon, the great struggle between good and evil. In any case, when we come to that end, we will see that philosophy, human knowledge, as it has developed, has had as its purpose to help us to understand the Word of God, philosophy in the service of theology. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.